This is Metal Mike, and in this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, I talk to the founder of one of my all-time favorite bands, Steve Blaze from Lillian Axe. I get all the details on their new album coming out this year, and we go into depth on the first four Lillian Axe albums. And this is CGM here. Now, on the 80s Glam Metal Twitter, we had a contest for you, the followers, and you guys were able to name your very own band, similar to Lillian Axe. You had to get a grandmother's name and a weapon and put them together. So we did end up picking a winner for the contest, and the winner will be revealed right here on this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Now here is Steve Blades. Steve, welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How you doing, man? Hey, Mike. How are you, buddy? I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. My voice is a little bit raspy because I am, uh, I've been, uh, fighting for like six weeks now i've been fighting uh bronchitis and the flu i got the flu in disney right after christmas and it uh was kind of there was influenza a flu on top of the bronchitis and it's knocked me down pretty hard the last few weeks i'm starting to feel a little bit better now so but i've been coughing so much that my my voice is uh a little scratchy, so I apologize if I sound like Rod Stewart or something. <laughs> hey, man, raspy's good. It's like metal, right? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell us uh, what's going on with the band uh, heading into 2020? Well, the most important thing about 2020 is that we are uh, working on uh, releasing our next album, which will be our 14th overall release, I think, our 10th or 11th studio album. And uh, so um, we've got several tracks done already. Um, the ideas are all pretty much written and everything. It's just a matter of sitting in studio time. See, I don't like the old school way of doing records like we used to, was where you'd go lock yourself in the studio for three, four months and didn't come out to what was done. But now, because of the way the things have changed in the, in the, the, the music business climate, we're allowed the opportunity to kind of space it out. So what I like to do, and on this album I'm doing it basically in uh, in the linear order of the album is uh, recording one song at a time. So we've recorded the first three songs in the order that they're going to be at the beginning of the record. And uh, we're going to pick up the pace a lot more this uh, year coming up. But, uh, you know, we've had a few shows lined up that were really good big shows for us recently and uh we've got a few more coming up that we're looking forward to but in between we're kind of slowing the 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 gate thing down a little bit so that we can get this record finished what's the direction of the material um you know as being the, the songwriter it's kind of i can only look at uh i guess from from a one-sided place i would say that this is going to be what i would say the most epic album uh if you take the overall feel and approach of songs like ghost of winter stop the hate the world stop turning uh fire blood the earth and sea deep freeze the the ones that are, are that comes tomorrow for example it's going to be more like that. There are, uh, just on the first three songs, there's piano, strings, massive guitars, um, lots of vocals. Um, 
big and it's epic and it's powerful. Uh, so it's going in the direction. The song, is in, the album's entitled uh, From Womb to Tomb, and it is loosely autobiographical in that it's not necessarily about my life and events in my life, but more or less like the stages of my life and the lessons learned at strategic points in my life. So the album starts off with a song called Breathe and begins, the first thing you hear on the record is is the actual womb of the unborn uh, baby in the womb, what, what the heartbeat sounds like. You hear the, the actual heartbeat, and it's an actual heartbeat of, a, of an unborn child in the womb, which isn't like your traditional boom, 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 boom. It's as like, wow, wow, wow. It sounds like a swirling type noise. And, um, and the, the first song is about the actual birth, the child going from this nine months of, of its formation and uh, rest and growing and becoming what it's going to become uh, DNA-wise and the birth into life at that point. So each song is about a different lesson or a scenario of a human being's life and mine and, and the things that be, you know, we learn and become aware of at different points. So um, it's deep and it's heavy, but it's also something that every single human being is, will be uh, relatable to. Man, that sounds great. I'm, I'm excited about that. I didn't realize you guys were working on a new album. And you know that uh, once this thing comes out, get in touch with me and uh, I'll be putting it on my uh, Twitter and, uh, and it'll be awesome. Excellent. So I'll make sure I get copy immediately. It's, it's good. We've got the, you know, we've got the album cover pick. We've got the, the, everything is basically waiting on just getting in the studio to cut all the rest of the tracks because it's a, uh, a highly complicated, uh, I, I guess it's easy for us to do because we know what we're doing and we're well prepared, but there's a lot to be done. A lot of minute attention to detail. Uh, little things that you wouldn't even notice unless I said, listen to this in the background here. And uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, I'm really proud of it, and I don't mind the pace being a little slower because it allows me the opportunity to keep listening and absorbing and coming up with new ideas and making sure that everything that we record is perfectly what we want. So that's, it becomes difficult sometimes, but it's going really, really well so far. So on the 80s glam metal cast, we like to kind of go back in time, right? It's called 80s glam metal cast. So let's go back to your first album and talk about that a little bit. Um, you get signed to MCA. You're produced by Robin Crosby from Rat. What, what are your memories from this time? Uh, you know, we were really... Focus. It was a really strange situation because the band uh, at the time was myself, Michael Max, Johnny Vines, and Danny King. And we were asked to do some shows with Rat in Queensryche. At that time, Marshall Burrell saw the band. He was managing Rat and wanted to uh, work with the band and uh, called me up and said, Hey, Steve, it's Marshall Burrell. I manage Rat. And uh, seeing you the last couple of shows, Robin Crosby really likes the band and wants to produce you. And uh, would you like a record deal? And I was like, absolutely, of 
course. What do you think? So uh, at that point, they started sending people out from MCA to check us out. And um, they unfortunately at that time just wanted to sign me because I was a writer and they, you know, own the name of the band. And uh, what happened is they, they just signed me and it was either you get the deal or go on. But at the time, the band as it was, even though we were doing really popular, doing well and we were popular in the area, we had a lot of internal things going on that if I hadn't have taken the deal, we probably would have wound up breaking up sooner after that either. But they signed me and they didn't want to sign the rest of the band. They kept Danny King and it was just due to some more personal things and anything else. So at that point, I reformed the band and that's when I uh, got Ron Taylor and uh, John Sturr and Rob Stratton to the first lineup of the band. And we immediately went into pretty much pre-production songs that had already been written and were ready to go. And we got with Robin and I did pre-production, did a couple of shows because we were all new to each other except for Danny, you know, he was still a drummer. But uh, we did some shows and we went right into the studio in Cherokee in Los Angeles to uh, record the first record. And uh, Robin was great. It was, it, was, it was new to him because, you know, he had never produced anything before, but he liked the band. And I had always been pretty much produced everything as well. So I worked closely with him on that. And uh, it, was, it was a great deal. I mean, a great deal of fun and it was a new learning experience. I mean, now if I if I had a chance to go back, I would probably do a few things differently. Uh, but for the most part, you know, we there was there was no playing around. We went in there and, and we were uh, we worked hard and, and uh, knocked it out of the park. You know, we did the best uh, work that we could. We were all you know young twenties and uh, it was a pretty exciting time. But the biggest issue we had was that we had a label in MCA that gave us a whole lot of rhetoric and uh, and didn't really pull through on what they were supposed to do for the band. So uh, that was, you know, pretty much what went down in the first record. We went on tour with Crocus uh, for several months and, uh, and played a lot. We did a lot of shows. But we never, you know, MCA should have gotten us on a bigger, better tours. They never did. And uh, we didn't really have very good management in Marshall because he, you know, he dropped the ball on us. He pretty much uh, came in and did very little. I think it was almost like he did it so he could make some money and get out. And uh, next thing you know, MCA wants us to go do a second album when we should have been, you know, staying on and pushing hard on the first record. But they sent us right in the studio, and I had been writing all along. Uh, all the songs for Love and War album. So that's where we went next, right into uh, uh, the Enterprise in Burbank and recorded Love and War at that point. So basically, um, you know, and it's funny with the MCA thing. I mean, I just, I'll be honest with you, I talked with Mark Ferrari last night and, and he had the same kind of feelings about MCA. You know, Ron Keel has, has the same kind of feelings. Um, it really seems to me that I don't even know if the right songs were picked for like a single. Well, there was only one single. There was only one video, right? Dream of, Dream of a Lifetime? Well, Dream of a Lifetime, the first record was, yeah, the one and only single. And then we went right into, uh, you know, right into Love and War. They didn't even, they minorly 
you know, we got some radio play on like nobody knows in yeah, misery a little song. bit, yeah. but it wasn't because they were putting out, uh, you know, uh, out promotional, doing promotional campaigns and pushing it as a single. It's just radio stations liked it and they were picking it up. So when Love and War came out, they gave us a lot of lip service about, oh, shoulder love. That's, that's the hit. That's going to be huge. And we're getting it on radio play here and here. And this song, it, it was a big song for us, but it should have been a major hit. But they didn't do anything with it. We did a video on MTV, got a little bit of play, and that was it. Once again, no good tour, no backing, no, uh, you know, getting behind it, staying with it. It was more like, you know, oh, it was good. You know, go out there and beat the road up, guys, and uh, and uh, you, you will just see. What, hopefully, something will stick somewhere. You know, <laughs> and, uh, you know. Meanwhile, you got other labels like Atlantic that are taking their new bands like White Line and putting them on every major tour out there, and it, that, that's how they're breaking. Because yeah. we were a live band, people. You know, we still are. People love seeing us live. You know, we're good. We're tight. We're powerful. And we play our stuff like the record, you know? So um, that's where we needed to be. But, you know, we were still out there playing, but we were doing it all on our own. So, but, you know, that, that's a story you probably heard from a million bands. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Mark Ferrari, we're, we're actually playing with them, with Cold Sweat, uh, in a couple of weeks for the uh, pre-cruise party for Monsters Rock Cruise. Oh, sweet. We, no, that'd be great. Uh, one that's going to be us and... Uh, us with Madame X, Raven, and uh, Cold Sweat. Yeah, yeah, he, we we did. We talked about Cold Sweat. How they, you know, those guys haven't done anything in thirty years, so that's pretty wild. <laughs> yep, they're they're doing that uh, pre-cruise party with us uh, in two weeks from tonight. So one tune I wanted to ask you about, uh, just to we'll finish off on your first album with this is is Waiting in the Dark, uh, dude. That song's amazing. I mean, that song is. For somebody's debut album, that that's a pretty epic song, and and that's why when you said when you talked about epic songs for your new album, you know that's one of the ones where I feel is an epic song, and it almost yeah. had some um, Alice Cooper vibes. Like Stephen, did you like Alice Cooper, the old Cooper band? Well, when I was a kid, I was probably the one and only Alice Cooper fanatic. I had Easy Action and Pretties for You on vinyl. I had every Alice Cooper act. Alice Cooper, the first, the, the, all the, uh, the original band albums, I had every one of them. I knew every word, guitar lick, drum lick, noise, any anything you could even hear on any one of the songs I had memorized. That was my most important influence musically in my life, which was great because we got to tour with Alice a couple of times. Actually got to golf with him and 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 you know become a little bit of a friend with him and it was uh it was really cool coming around full circle because when i was 10 11 years old you know that's all i wanted to do was listen to alice cooper and, and see him and i knew at 10 years old more than anybody about alice you know so um i'm sure it was always an influence you know because more like the early stuff like you know black juju and ballad of dwight fry my stars, you know, all the early stuff with the original band. That's what I thought was just so unique and amazing. And um, so, you know, Waiting in the Dark was basically about getting old. And even as a, a young man, fearing it, you know, and, and uh, 
that's yeah, that was the premise of that. But that is, yeah. When you say when you take the if you take the Lillian acts, what you consider epic songs from each album, as opposed to the ballads or the rockers or whatever, "Waiting in the Dark" was the first epic song. That and like "Hard Luck" off the first record, the first real epic song that we put out. So probably for anybody who bought Love and War and and like show a little love. Okay, so this album, I look at this album as kind of, it's almost split in two in some respects. So there's a lot of just straightforward rock songs, right? And then you've got some songs that, and I'm going to try to get out of you where the influence for some of these songs comes from because it's hard to pinpoint. It's almost like you guys are the alternative before there ever was an alternative. You know, when you talk about the world stopped turning on me, what was your influence for a song like that? Well, you know, Ever since I was a little kid, I played classical guitar and flamenco guitar. So classical music influenced me as far as melody and the power of melody. I think that in the creation of a song, uh, the melody of the vocals to me is the most important aspect of any song, more so than anything. Some people may say, no, it's the rhythm, or it's the, the background chords or whatever, or it's the words or whatever. To me, it's the melody of the vocals and how they how the chords and the melodies intertwine with each other <laughs> to create things that are transcending and so you know the world stopped turning was like that too i need i never really to be honest with you the funny part is i never there's no precognition in, in my writing <laughs> i never sit down and say i gotta write something like that or you know i want to do this it's 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 just just comes comes out of me and i don't know how or why it's like it's funny because i tell people i'm like jekyll and hyde um you know the the dr jekyll part is my day-to-day cutting up funny having a good time family man normal guy and then when it comes to the music there's a switch that flips and and and, you know i become a, a different human being and these ideas they come and I don't know where they come from, or I don't have any technique. Sometimes I'll dream a melody. Sometimes I will, um, I'll see a bird and, and a melody or a line will come in my head. The ideas, they just come from a spot in me that is a culmination of everything that I see and hear and feel around me. And um, songs like that and Ghost of Winter, those are the things that I particularly are the things that I would say closer to uh, to my soul than, of course, I love just the rocking songs, you know, you know, and people like, she likes it on top and Ghost of Winter on the same album. That's yeah. really quite opposite. But I'm like, you know what? It's still an idea. And I couldn't write a song about the topic that she likes it on top is about and have it melodically and uh, quarterly like Ghost of Winter. You couldn't see me singing, you know, uh, Ghost of Winter melodies about She Likes It On Top <laughs> with that song. You know, it wouldn't work. And the music <laughs> makes the lyrics work. The music enhances the lyrics <laughs> and makes them effective, and that's how the lyrics get to your soul is through the music. So... But there's still ideas I have, so I have to write the ideas and make the music, you know, affected properly. So, uh, but I don't know. 
the, the more, you know, more records we do, the more obviously I get away from topics that I like to write about when I was 25, you know, look at the last album and death comes tomorrow is a whole lot different than dream of lifetime. But if you look at, if you look at them both, you can still go, you know what? Still the essence of Lillian Axe is in both of those songs. So that's one great thing is why I'm glad we were never pigeonholed, even though because we all had long hair and we came out in the late eighties with our first album, we got pigeonholed into the glam band thing. But like you said, we were more alternative. Our biggest records, you know, Poetic Justice and Psycho Schizophrenia came out in the right smack in the middle of the grunge scene, right after Nirvana's album. Hit. As a matter of fact, Poetic Justice came out after uh, the, uh, the Nirvana record. And it was our biggest selling record. So, you know, I don't know. We don't fit. That's one reason I think maybe we've had more of a cult type following is that we never fit a mold. Like really an act. Well, you know, you're the power of your power metal. No, you're not. You're, you're glam metal. No, you're pop rock. No, you're heavy metal. No, you're groove. You know, I don't know what we are. We're a band. I don't want to be, we're a hard rock band. That's what you can call us. Everything else falls flat. You know, um, it's like taking, you know, bands like Pink Floyd. What do you call Pink Floyd? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Their music's heavy as heck, you know? They're not pop. You know, you can't call them metal. You can't call them, they're just Pink Floyd. We're just Lillian X. All right, so now it is time for us to reveal the winner of the Name a Band Contest. Now for the runner-ups, we have Marietta Mace by David Quenstyle. Sorry if I screw up your name. And next, we have Betty Bazooka by Simon Hickey. That was a pretty good one, too. But the absolute winner, the best band name that we received on the 80s Glam Twitter was by Dirk Columbus at 2 Chain, and he actually came up with Gertrude Guillotine. And right there, we have a nice photoshopped album cover for Gertrude Guillotine. Now, Metal Mike, what do you think about this album cover? I thought this album cover was great. I thought the name was hilarious, and it really fit perfectly with everything that we were shooting for. And as you heard Steve say, one of his big influences was Alice Cooper, so the guillotine fits right in. So now we're going to get right back into the interview right now. So you talk about poetic justice. Um, it's it's kind of... I look at it, it's almost very similar to Love and War. Like you've got the two halves where you've got your straightforward rockers and you've got some depth. I think you're getting more spiritually deep on this album. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, that's always been there. But, you know, at first, when you first start playing, you know, I mean, you're younger. So every every topic that I write about or every feeling is part of a maturing thing. Uh, on that record, for example... You know, it was a new label. I was at the point where I was becoming a better writer. I was falling into my own. I was starting to understand, you know, this is what this band is about. You know, just write. Just write. Don't worry about everything else. If you could write something on a ukulele, and it's going to sound like Lillian X. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about what everybody else tells you you need to do. Just go out and write what your heart tells you to write. And that's what I did. And I wrote those songs uh, over, you know, about a two-year period, I guess. I just, I liked writing. I got into 
you know, where I just, I like songs that have dark and light contrast, the soft into the big, you know, <laughs> like see you someday. Um, she's my salvation, the promised land. I love starting songs out with this, you know, very intimate, soft, uh, melodic beautiful intro and then blowing it up until you know lava shooting out of the volcano i like that and then back down again and blow it up i like the light and dark contrast i like the soft and the hard contrast and uh those are the uh, that's what special on this new record is so much of that this album is going to take you all over the place but that's kind of where we were with poetic justice and hey, we were becoming a better band you know better players, better writers, growing up, being better people, you know, and all that comes out in the wash. One thing that really hit me, uh, and, and, and I never really noticed it much back when I was a kid, but, you know, I, I revisit these albums frequently, and uh, and I'm not much of a person who loves guitar solos, really, to be honest with you, but, man, the guitar playing, the whole song, Mercies, is amazing, but, man, you've got a killer solo on that song. You're shredded. <laughs> I thank you. Well, the one thing that I that I've always paid attention to, and I, I really learned this from the bands that I like, especially Queen, is that whenever Brian May did a solo, I could sing it. You know, when a solo time came up, it wasn't just a guitar player, you know, wanking around and trying to go as fast as he could. I like playing fast. I'm not gonna lie to you, but I like it to be melodically fast, and I like it to be something I could sing. So every solo. I would treat as though it was another vocal. So I wanted to be able to sing the notes. So when I go to my solos, I can sing them in my head and every single time. And I wanted them to be where I, I there's one thing, there were some bands that I listened to that I loved, but every time it would get to the guitar solo, I was like, I want to get back to the vocals. I want to get back to the vocals. <laughs> yep. And um, I didn't want that to be the case with me. So I wanted to make sure, uh, as you notice in a lot of our songs, the solo sections are completely different uh, quarterly than the rest of the song. Like, it's a different, it's a whole different set of uh, circumstances. So it, it's not me just playing the solo over the chorus, or over a verse or a bridge. It's a whole different piece that's unique from the rest of the song. So it's not like just repetition crap. Like, okay, uh, I'll just solo over the, the verse and bridge. Well, why? Why not have vocals there? So if I'm going to make the solo section as interesting as the rest of the song, um, it's got to be unique. It's got to be different. So that's my personal approach to guitar soloing. I want people to, I want it to be different and unique than the rest of the song, and I want you to be able to sing it when it comes to you. Well, my favorite album, as you probably have seen on Twitter that you guys have done, is Psycho Schizophrenia. Uh, I, I gotta give the album a plug right now. Anybody who's not heard it, doesn't have it, you gotta get it, you gotta listen to it. Because to me, I feel like this is where, this was the evolution, and I feel like this is where it all comes together. And there really isn't a split of songs anymore, in my opinion, where it was like, oh, here's our rockers and here's this. To me, it's like it's just one cohesive unit. It's it's come into, you know, it's bloomed. I don't know, man. I think that's just an amazing uh, piece of art right there. Well, I got to tell you, you know, I, um, over these years, I've heard 
millions of opinions on records, on our records and this and that. And when I hear you say something like that, it's not just a compliment to me, but it's like Mike gets it because you're right about that. That was the culmination to me of everything <laughs> where that record wasn't just a series of songs. It was a one piece of segments that worked into each other. And what happened is right after Poetic Justice, you know, we had success with that record. And they were like, oh, we'll get you. Of course, everybody's as soon as you have success, instead of continuing on it, they want to get you in the next studio and do the next record, which I think is ridiculous. But we had to. So we go back in there. But the studio, I mean, the record company, I'm sorry, bought me a little studio to demo. And I spent hours and hours and hours. I would go in there like 9 or 10 at night till 6 in the morning writing. And I was like a mad scientist. Because at that point in my entire life, the, the time frame where I wrote Psycho Schizophrenia was the most, I don't know how to say, uh, it was like an epiphany at that time that everything that I was, I had, I was so inspired and everything I was writing was coming from someplace else, but it was working. And I was like, there were, I wrote a, a bunch of songs for that record and they all made the record. It was like everything I was writing was just, it was turning into, in my opinion, I'm like, God, where's the cover? This is the best stuff I ever wrote. And at the end of it, I was like, this is different and unique, but it came so easy and so natural and was so enjoyable to write because I wasn't being held back. Nobody was trying to tell me, go do another true believer. They're like, just go write a great record. And I just, uh, the idea is it was the most open and like spiritually influenced time that I've ever had writing. And I've written lots and lots of songs. It just came so easy and natural. And, you know, I even like now sometimes I'm like, man, if I could just get back to that feeling that I had at the time, it would go quicker, you know? But um, that album to me, I guess, if I had to pick one out of our whole career, that'd probably be it. That'd be the one that I would say is the quintessential Lillian Axe record. It's got everything on it. Yeah, man. It's just, it was so, so powerful. I agree. I think my take on it is this. So I, I, I think I got into you guys probably in either 88 or 89. I can't really remember. But um, so I... I'm I'm 43, so by the time that album uh, Psycho Schizophrenia came out, I was probably 16, 17 years old. So you figure I had kind of followed the whole glam metal scene in my my early teens. So I liked the the melodicness, I liked the guitar sounds that came from that music. But even myself, I was I was growing up, I was changing. I didn't want another you know I didn't want the glam scene topics of music anymore. I think that a lot of people were played out with that that scene. Right. So you, so you've got it where it, there's some depth to it. Uh, it's creative. It's you guys didn't go grunge like a lot of the '80s bands did. This was just an original thing that was just like you said, totally in the zone. So I think wherever you were, um, I, you know, I was. I'm not saying I was at the same level that you are. I'm not, but I, I was getting it. I think I, I wanted the same thing. I didn't want the old. But I didn't want what was going on in the world with with grunge either. So I felt like right. this thing was, it's it's really to me, it's what a lot of bands could have, should have done. It's what that whole scene could have done, but you know, because of 
uh, that whole scene being cut down, uh, you know, by the media, by MTV. So I feel like if if all the other bands, and don't get me wrong, there's other bands that evolved but never got a fair shake. Even there's bands like Winger, uh, Extreme. Yep. They put out kick-ass albums in the early 90s, but like you said, it was yep. just marketing-wise, it was over. You know what I mean? Grunge was in. So to me, you, you nailed it. I think that's where the movement could have went if it could have stayed going for a long period of time. That's a very good point. And I want to tell you something else. The fact of the matter is that we didn't have a chance, okay? Because we were still tied into the 80s glam thing, even though we were late 80s, but we were still tied into that. So it didn't matter that we put out Psycho Schizophrenia. We were still had this albatross around our neck that, you know, they have, it was an 80s metal band, you know? And, and so even though... I even had people go, oh, Lillian Axe, you started to go grunge now with Psycho Schizophrenia. I'm like, are you even listening to the record? <laughs> nope. Because how, how the heck do you get grunge out of that? No, you get something you can't explain what it is because it's different, so you just throw a label that you can, that, you know, that's easy for other people to understand. Sit down and listen to it. Pay attention. But that wound up hurting us because no matter... How unique and good the record was, we still had the stigma of being an 80s band. Uh, you're right. Like, Extreme, for example, they had the, that, you know, the, the big hit, More Than Words. Then they came out with, what was it, Three Sides to Every Story? That's a cool album, I mean, yeah. that album, I love that record. That's my favorite Extreme record. Blew me away. Yeah. I listen to it even now. And they didn't get a shot with that. I mean, yeah. I'm sure it did well for them just because of their name, but they didn't, that album, it was, it was, it was immense. And it, you know, and people didn't give a crap. You know, it's like, you know, that's the more than words, man. You know, which I'm sure it's great to have a hit that big, but yeah, they deserved more of that. That album was phenomenal. So you're right about that. There's some bands that did grow, but still had that stigma attached to them that that wound up hurting. That's what that's what's so sad about uh, you know the media and the press and the ignorance of people. And especially in the music business and how they approach dealing with music. I've seen more ignorance than I have good stuff, to be honest with you. Well, there's uh, there's one. I, I like I said, I I could have a whole two hour episode about just this album, but there's one song that I feel like, you know, if somebody could redo this song today and it got the right traction, but the day that I met you, man, that's just a beautiful song. I hope it sometime can can t- be at the top of the charts or or gets people's attention because that's just an amazing song. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I've gotten more requests for me to go and would you come and play this at my wedding? <laughs> and how many people? That was as a matter of fact when I got married, I didn't even know they were doing this, but that was the song they played for me to dance with my wife, and I don't dance. But that's the song that that um. You know, they picked for us to dance to. I just went to a, a wedding recently, and that was the song they played to dance to. So it's like, a, it's it's a very pure song. I wrote it in about 15 minutes. And you're right. If Elton John did that song, or, you know, Dolly Parton, or <coughs> anybody like that did that song, it would be huge, Smith, because it, it, it it's just a pure, honest song, and it comes across like that, simple and, and from the heart. 
and it reaches people. But, you know, some of the greatest, biggest diamonds in the world are still laying in some mountain somewhere, and nobody will ever get to see them because nobody's uncovered them. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. So uh, I'm just happy that as many people have been able to experience our music in that song that have. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that could have been an immense, huge song. Yeah. Uh, there's one thing that I, right. I got to mention, uh, we talked about on the albums, but for me, I mean, there's a voice on all those albums that carries these songs as well, and that's Ron Taylor, man. He, I mean, he kills it on those those first four albums, you know? Ron is an amazing singer. <laughs> um, you know, he's, uh, he, he's, he's just a unique, fantastic voice, you know? He just, um, it was a shame that, you know, he decided... <laughs> at some point in 2004 that he just didn't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. So he just likes, he stays local and, you know, plays in his local bands and, you know, it's his, his life, you know? I mean, I look back and I'm like, you know, Derek's great, Brian's great and great singers and all, but, you know, you kind of wish it would have been great if we could have just, maybe he and I continued to stay together and weather all these things. You know, that would have been, that would have been nice, but, you know, you relationships change. I mean, name a rock band that, that hasn't had a change in it. I don't, you know, even the ones that have had minimal, they've had them at one time. So it's going to happen when you have a long career. It's part of life. The important thing is that you keep the music going. And like I always tell people, they're like, what do you think is the most important part of a band? Is it the singer? Is it the guitar player? I said, it's the songwriter. The songwriter is the most important person in the band. And I'm not saying that because I am a songwriter, because I could easily tell you it's the guitar player. But it is, because the songwriter <laughs> is the one that creates the song. Now, you can take a song like The Day I Met You, and it's a great song, and you can have 500 singers sing it, and it would be beautiful. I've heard amateurs putting videos on YouTube of them sitting in their living room singing it and playing it. You go pull it up and you'll find all kinds of people that are doing their own version of these songs, the Lillian Axe songs in their garage or, you know, with an acoustic guitar. And I listen to them and I go, wow, that's beautiful. What a nice job. What a job. That's great. But it's the song that lives on. It's the song that people will talk about when I'm dead and gone. It's the song that's going to live on in people's hearts if the artist still isn't there. So, it's very important to me. That's why I take the songwriting so brutally to heart because that is what lives on. So a song like that is, you know, it's important that people realize, you know, it's look at don't, you know, I got a lot of, you know, a lot of people were bummed out when Ron left the bands, for example. And I said, listen, man, I'm not going anywhere. I'm still going to be writing. We're going to find other good singers, and we're going to keep the band moving. But people, like you said, you know, when they first get into a band and first appreciate it, they get attached to it. They get attached to the people, and they get attached to parts about it. And um, a lot of people, you know, very attached to Ron because he was a great singer. But, uh, you know, time goes on, man. You have to move on. I wasn't about to just roll over and not do the band anymore just because, you know, Ron didn't want to tour and do records anymore. So, right. yeah, fantastic singer though, man. I mean, you, you got to admit he's one of the best out there. 
Just, dude, a, a very cool, interesting voice. I can't really pinpoint who he sounds like, and that's probably because he has a very cool, original voice. So, Exactly right. Well, hey, man, listen, I got a whole other interview that I possibly could do, but I, I have to cut us short because I've got another one ringing in at 8 o'clock. Um, but I really hope we can talk again. And, and actually, maybe what we could do is when the album comes out, we could talk about it. I could listen to it. We could talk about it. And then we could finish up on some other questions that I had that didn't, we didn't get to fit in. You know what? That would be, look, you can call me anytime, Mike. I'll be glad to do it anytime. doesn't have to be when the new record's out. You can call me anytime if you want to do a part two or something. Yeah. Uh, but let me tell you a couple of things real quick, if sure. you don't mind. Yeah, you're, yeah go uh, ahead. I have a podcast called The Love and War Show. We have a YouTube channel and 21 episodes. It's every Sunday night uh, at 7 o'clock. And it's myself and my buddy Todd Schmidt, um, and uh, he's part of, of the band team. He does all of our videos and whatnot. But we have a podcast called Love and War Show. Every Sunday night, you can you go to my Facebook page, and it's on live there, and you can you can see it after. You know, it's always up there, and it's on the YouTube channel. But it's two hours of we talk about everything, and it's funny. You want to see the the funny side of me? We do. We have all kinds of skits, and and uh, my mom comes on there and gives love tips and cooking. T- it's it's just a hilarious show, and I urge everybody to go check it out. A love and war show, and uh, go to my Steve Blaze Facebook page, and you can see it Sunday nights at seven. And then um, I'm still doing my ghost hunting show called Through the Veil. For my ghost hunting team, I'm the host, and we we do ghost hunting. And uh, we're shopping that show out to networks, too. So uh, we've got uh, lots going on for Lillian X. Just everybody, you know, keep in touch through the Facebook page and website. And uh, thank you for all the support. And, and I appreciate you, Mike, getting it, if, that, if you understand what I mean. Totally, man. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that I was able to tell you that what an impact that album and all, all your albums have had on me. So great conversation. We'll definitely talk again. Thanks so much, Steve. Wow, what a great chat with Steve. We'll definitely catch up with him again. I got to tell you, there are tons of interviews coming that will blow your mind. Kevin Steele from Rocks Gang. Chips Enough. Mark Kendall from Great White. Greg Chasen from Badlands. And J.J. French from Twisted Sister. And many more. So you know what you have to do? You have to subscribe so you don't miss them. Thanks for listening. Rock on!